friend and colleague, Dr. Gay Landstrom. We know her as our System Chief Nursing Officer at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. Currently, she is serving in an interim role as CEO at Mount Escutney Hospital. And without further ado, Gay. Thank you so much. Before I introduce the person you really came to hear um, this morning, I do want to share with you some really important work that has been going on over the last two years, and it really relates to um, the, this um, lecture series on interprofessional education and practice and, um, and the work of the Macy Foundation and the, the kind of innovation they have been sponsoring. I want to share with you the work that has been going on to develop the doctoral program, uh, doctorate of nursing practice program here at Dartmouth. Over uh, about two years ago, um, we really took a hard look at what we needed um, to help create a sustainable health system. What did we need in the way of uh, people prepared to help create uh, new models of care for the future. And one of the deficits that we recognized was that our nurses here, and we have a large number of nurses, well over 2,000 registered nurses, 280 plus advanced practice nurses within our system, there was a real desire for us to have um, a, a doctoral program here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, within our health system. And we knew that we wanted nurses to be prepared to be partners in creating the healthcare of the future. And we had a deficit. And so at that time, we formed a team who really began diligently looking at how could we bring this kind of high-level program worthy of uh, the name Dartmouth to our organization. Um, I would like at this moment to ask any of, uh, I know a number of you are here in the room, those who have been a part of the development of the Doctorate of Nursing Practice Program, would you please stand so we can thank you? These folks have put in many hours um, to develop this program. And for those of you who may not be very familiar with the Doctorate of Nursing Practice uh, program, let me share with you just a little bit about what that academic program helps prepare a nurse to do. This is the highest clinical degree um, within nursing. Um, it has been uh, compared to the, the, uh, the MD uh, preparation for physicians, um, although it is a, a different curriculum, it prepares nurses at the highest level clinically. It prepares nurses to design structures and processes to affect the care of populations of patients, not just those patients who they have um, cared for, perhaps as a, a nurse practitioner. Um, it prepares nurses to really be full partners with other disciplines um, in working to design models for the future. 
It also, uh, the Doctorate of Nursing Practice program provides an opportunity for interprofessional education. Those organizations who are blessed to have um, medical education programs and nursing education programs and perhaps pharmacy and respiratory therapy and, and public health, they have the opportunity for those students to learn together. And we've heard many experts tell us that the only way for us to really solve um, the, the healthcare problems that we face now and in the future is through a, an interdisciplinary lens. So this prepares nurses to be partners. And the program that we developed, the curriculum um, that, that we wove together, not only meets the full requirements of a doctorate of nursing practice, um, as it is, um, as it is uh, across the country, but we also wove in some of the, the greatest strengths um, of Dartmouth and the Dartmouth Institute program, some of that great um, learning and uh, breakthrough thinking. So this is a program that we have created that is uh, not just um, a, a full Doctorate of Nursing Practice program, but one that is really um, exceptional. So we've been doing this work, and we've been um, working on trying to find the right home for this program so that we can really bring it to life. And I'm, I'm pleased to share with you that we have been having um, great and promising conversations in working with the Dartmouth Institute as a place where we can really start the Doctorate of Nursing program, have nursing scholars side by side with medicine and public health learning together, and, um, and, and creating the kinds of models that we need for the future. So just a bit of an update um, for you. I know the question that I get so often is when might this program start? And right now we are um, targeting the fall of 2018, if all goes well. So um, just a bit of an update for you. And now I would, I'd like to um, introduce, and I'm so pleased to introduce, our speaker this morning, Dr. George Tebow, who I know is known well to so many of you. He has had uh, a distinguished career um, at Harvard Medical School, has um, so many um, recognitions and, um, and titles in his career. He has served as a leader within Partners Health, um, and then since 2008 has served as the president and director of the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. And we are just so um, pleased to have you with us this morning and are anxious to hear what you have to share with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Is this working? Everybody hear me okay? Uh, so, a little that I know when uh, months ago, uh, Jim called me and we agreed on this date for a tumultuous uh, day. <laughs> uh, trying to think of some way to relate this to what I'm going to talk about, and I don't have that. Uh, I guess what I would say uh, is the work that we are going to talk about and the work that you're involved in every day and the work that we're involved in every day at the Macy Foundation to improve education in order to improve health health care uh, is uh, immutable. It cannot be affected such things as elections, so can't uh, deny that there may be some impact on it. But, but what we need to do, our precious uh, uh, 
mission, our responsibility, our, our opportunity in our profession uh, doesn't change. Uh, and we have to think of it that way. Even though we live in a political world that is buffeting us, uh, we have a sacred mission that is to improve the health of our patients, improve the health of the public. And we need to do that together. And all the more reason that we need to do it together uh, because uh, there are these forces outside that might disrupt that, our ability to do that. So I would say it makes the relevance of this even more pointed uh, what our responsibility is as members and leaders of the health profession to keep focused on that and to not uh, be distracted. So I guess that's my take on Is this working now? No. Is that better? No. No. All right. Let's, uh, let me just hold the mic then. Test, test. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to repeat that monologue. <laughs> So uh, uh, let's stay focused on what we do and what we can control, and let's work together. All the more important. So what I'm going to try to cover in the next uh, 40 minutes or so is a, let's see, I needed the advancer. <laughs> and the lights. Oh. So. Yes, nothing's going to work. <laughs> uh, so how do I advance? There we go. All right. So I'm going to cover briefly the case for interprofessional education and team-based care. That's a big subject in its own right. We've been heavily invested in the Macy Foundation for eight and a half years now. I'm going to touch briefly on what some of those activities are. If you want to come to my talk that I'm going to give later, you're going to hear more about that. Uh, but then I'm going to quickly shift to how is this relevant to addressing the primary care needs, particularly in our country, and what is the important role of nursing in doing that. And that's really, to me, the most important take-home message. And then I'm going to talk about how this also feeds into the culture change that we need throughout our whole healthcare system, both in education and delivery, in order to accomplish the goals of improving the health of the public. So what's the case for interprofessional education in team-based care? We have an increasing amount of evidence that care delivered by well-functioning teams is better care. And I emphasize there, well-functioning teams, because not everything that looks like a team really functions like a team. And we know that though when teams are well-functioning, we get better patient outcomes. In terms of clinical outcomes, we get better patient satisfaction. And very importantly, we get greater professional satisfaction. And Finally, that the economics of care are better. So we have a growing body of evidence. We need to keep building that evidence, and I'll refer to efforts that we're making to in, improve that body of evidence. But it's, it's really quite strong now. Yet, if you look at our educational system, it doesn't reflect the fact that that's what we're preparing people to do. We educate our health professionals separately, and, and as a consequence of that, there are many, many examples 
of poorly functioning teams and many, many examples of <coughs> adverse consequence from poorly functioning teams of less efficient care, less uh, satisfied patients, poorer clinical outcomes, and poorer professional satisfaction. We know that burnout is rampant throughout our professions. So therefore, if that is the, that is the, all, if we accept all these as true, we ought to be focusing more of our attention in the educational process on learning how to work in teams. And that team-based competencies are core to being a successful health professional today and tomorrow. I'd like to say it is as fundamental as, as anatomy and physiology. And some part of our educational process should be interprofessional in order for health professionals to learn how to work in teams. Now, the WHO defined interprofessional education as when students, and I've added to that, and faculty, because you can't actually do this unless you bring the faculty along, from two or more professions learn about, from, and with each other. Now, all of those words are important. This is not just sitting in a classroom together, but it's active engagement and interaction, learning about each other, from each other, and with each other, in order to enable effective collaboration and to improve health outcomes. So the interprofessional education is not an end in itself. It is, in fact, designed to create collaboration and better patient outcomes. And that's very important that that is the goal of every interprofessional education encounter is to improve the ability to collaborate in order to lead to better patient outcomes. We have been involved in this at the Macy Foundation now for about eight and a half years. We had a conference four years ago bringing together our grantees from around the country. We had about uh, 20 uh, grantees from around the 20 grantees from around the country uh, that were involved in interprofessional education and about 25 institutions. That's okay. Um, we now have over 30 grantees and over 40 institutions around the country who are involved in interprofessional education in varying ways, in varying sites, at varying parts of the. Uh, educational trajectory. This work has been greatly aided by work of a group called IPEC, which is, which is the a get, coming together of the associations. <laughs> this is very interesting. <laughs> the world is turned upside down. <laughs> so the association of the schools of, uh, of medicine, osteopathic medicine, nursing, public health, and pharmacy and dentistry got together, formed this group called IPAC, Interprofessional uh, uh, Education Competencies, and developed these core competencies for interprofessional education that really have been a guiding a lexicon, if you will, of what the goals are of interprofessional education. In addition to that, we, uh, the Macy Foundation, along with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, working with HRSA uh, as part of the Department of HHS, have formed out in Minnesota by, na first, by national competition the first ever national 
interprofessional center for uh, interprofessional practice and education. This has been in existence for four years now, and it is charged with developing this database to document uh, the evidence that interprofessional education and collaborative practice actually lead to better patient outcomes, and then to share and disseminate best practices. So this is an ongoing work of the National Center that we and other f foundations and the federal government are supporting. So this is a growing, growing field, an academic field, developing evidence to form this basis for interprofessional education and collaborative practice leading to better outcomes. Now, what are the lessons we've learned so far, eight years into this journey? And I should point out, this is not a brand new idea. There have been advocates for interprofessional education going back to the 1970s, a number of uh, reports of the Institute of Medicine and other national and international groups. But it has never gotten traction, particularly not gotten traction in the United States. And now it is getting traction. And we're seeing it now becoming a requirement for the uh, standards for health professions education. And the lessons we've learned so far in this journey are that leadership from the top is essential. There are many reasons not to do interprofessional education, many logistical obstacles. In the deans of medical schools, the head of academic medical centers, the heads of universities need to get behind it in order to remove these obstacles. And we know now when that happens, it can be done. Secondly, that extensive planning is needed to be successful in this. These are not casual social encounters. And interprofessional education got kind of a bad name, I think, early on. This was just about socializing, kind of getting together and getting to know each other. And that's an important part of it. That's an important corollary or dividend of it. But the real serious work of education is serious work of education. It involves rigorous planning, and there have to be clearly stated educational goals, measured outcomes, and uh, the experiences need to be repeated throughout the educational trajectory. Just having an introductory course, having a one-time get-together, doesn't reinforce it at each point that is developmentally appropriate for the learners in the health professions. New technologies can assist in this. Uh, simulation is a powerful tool for interprofessional education. Online learning can, can deal sometimes with the, uh, with the fact that uh, campuses may not be uh, uh, laid out in such a way that the learners can be in the same place at the same time. So technology is a wonderful facilitator of interprofessional education. But the faculty must be brought along. Most faculty did not learn in an interprofessional way. And one of the great dividends of it, though, is that when faculty get together with faculty from other health professions, they find that they have new kindred spirits, new people who are also focused on education to help them in planning and in executing these new programs. And finally, it's very important that interprofessional education be involved in real work, that, that this is not just um, an add-on, but in fact it is, it is important for the development of the professional skills that each of our professions want and need problem solving together, community outreach together, doing real work together is what sustains this. <coughs> now, I'm going to make a switch now. How is that related to achieving our goals in primary care, which is what 
uh, I said I was going to do. How is interprofessional education important to achieving primary care goals? Well, the definition of primary care, going back to the Alma-Alta conference in 1978, primary health care is essential health care based on practical, scientifically sound, socially acceptable methods and technology made universally acceptable to individuals and families in the communities through their full participation at a cost that the community and the country can afford. We have had a hard time achieving that in this country, and we lag behind a large part of the developed world in the degree to which we've invested in primary care and the degree to which we provide effective, accessible primary care by the Alma, uh, Alta definition. I will make the point, the thesis, that interprofessional education can help us achieve this goal. So how can interprofessional education that I've described in the first part of the talk help us achieve this goal? Well, first of all, interprofessional education advances the skills and practice of all health professionals. And in order to meet the needs of the public in primary care, that care will need to be provided by many professions. So it is the development of a workforce that everybody is functioning at their maximum capacity to achieve together the goals of primary care. And this has been the subject of a Macy conference, who will provide primary care and how will they be trained, which was co-chaired by Linda Cronenwet, formerly from here, then the Dean of Nursing at North Carolina, and Victor Zhao, then the Chancellor at Duke and now the head of the National Academy of Medicines. And one of the major recommendations that came out of this conference was that nurses and physician's assistants need to be trained and fully empowered to work as independent practitioners alongside with physicians and other team members. And that all of the health professions need to make primary care a more attractive career pathway by providing clinical experiences that are meaningful, robust, and stimulating enough that, that uh, uh, the health professionals will be attracted to careers in primary care. The future of nursing study, coming out of what was then the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, also called for increasing the scope of practice of nurses to enable them to function independently as primary care providers. And then a follow-up study of that, which I was privileged to participate in five years later, looked at how are we doing in that regard and found that we've made progress, but we have much more to do in order to make full use of advanced practice nurses in all of our health professionals at the top of their license, at the top of their training to fully utilize them if we're going to have an effective primary care workforce. Well, what are some of the numbers on that? Ed Salzberg, who works at George Washington and is one of the uh, uh, leading experts in healthcare workforce today, uh, has given me these numbers. The current estimated primary care workforce, that is the, the frontline practitioners of primary care, today are about uh, 250,000 physicians, which make up a little less than 80% of this uh, uh, practitioner workforce. Nurse practitioners make up about 13%, and physician's assistants, 8%. If we look ahead to the year 2020, the number of physicians going into primary care has leveled off 
and we will add about 9,000 physicians per year in 2020 to that workforce. Nurse practitioners are going up happily and, and will add almost an equal number of nurse practitioners to that primary care workforce. Physicians assistants are going up so that the new additions to the primary care workforce in 2020 look different than the composition of that workforce today. And it will look like it's about 40, a little more than 40% physicians, a little more than 40% nurse practitioners, and about 15% physician assistants. So we will need all of these practitioners fully trained, functioning at their highest level in order to meet the needs of the public going forward. And this was the uh, point of a recent perspective written by Tom Bodenheimer in the New England Journal, rethinking the primary care workforce, an enhanced role for nurses. But it's not just nurses as frontline practitioners, not just advanced practice nurses as frontline practitioners. We know, and I don't know if you can, I can't see the slide from there, so I'm going to, we have done a wonderful job of increasing our RN workforce in this country. In a decade, we've doubled the number of nurses that we are producing. So the RN workforce, now numbering uh, about 3.7 million in this country, is another incredible resource to meet our primary care needs. And here again is where interprofessional education comes in, because interprofessional education promotes the development of team-based competencies, which I said at the beginning. And a team-based approach to primary care will better meet patient needs and better meet professional needs. And these improved patient outcomes are documented by a number of studies now. Uh, I'm just going to cite a few of them here. Collaborative care for patients with depression and chronic illness, uh, team-based care and improved blood pressure control, improved patient satisfaction, a review from a, a number of studies in Canada show improved patient satisfaction with team-based care, and very importantly, improved professional outcomes, a series of studies uh, this one from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, this one uh, from a, 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 a review of practices in the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and this one from uh, uh, Chris Sinsky's study of primary care practices around the country sh showed that professional satisfaction of all the team members is improved with an effective team-based approach to care. We held a recent Macy conference which focused specifically on the role of registered nurses in helping to transform primary care. How we can make use of this large nursing workforce to improve team-based primary care. The thesis of this study was that primary care, first of all, is in need of transformation. It's necessary to transform it in order to improve access to care. It's necessary to transform it in order to improve performance and provide more comprehensive care for patients in need of it. That the 3.7 million RNs are an untapped resource to partner in this primary care transformation. But to realize this, barriers will need to be removed. Barriers both in the training of nurses and tr barriers in what nurses are allowed to do in practice. The recommendations from this conference, which have already been 
widely acclaimed, both in the nursing world and in the education world and in the primary care world, is that first of all, we need to change the healthcare culture. I'm going to come back to that uh, at the end as well. That we need to both more greatly value primary care and we need to more greatly value nurses in primary care. We need to transform the practice environment to make it truly team-based and to bring out fully the developed skills of all of the health professionals practicing in primary care, but particularly those of nurses. We need to refocus our education system for nurses to rebalance it from what has been a predominantly acute care model of education to one that includes strongly primary care and other practice sites for care that will meet the needs of our patient population going forward. We need to support primary care career development for nurses so that nurses who go into primary care or who, who want to change their careers to go into primary care have career development opportunities to make that transition and then a pathway to, to rise up to leadership positions in primary care. We need to develop faculty for primary care in nursing schools, which will mean partnering more with practicing nurses, making them part of nursing faculty. And I think the development of the DMP program here uh, speaks to that need for a broadening of our faculty uh, in nursing schools. And finally and importantly, all of this will depend upon having more interprofessional education opportunities throughout the educational continuum from the beginning of nursing school into uh, 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 advanced practice nursing programs, doctoral programs, and then continuing education program in nurses that continue to build and reinforce the skills of collaborative practice. Some of the examples of these expanded roles for RNs, and here we're talking about RNs, not advanced practice nurses, is uh, care management of chronic disease, coaching and adjusting medications per protocols, leading complex care management teams for high utilization patients with multiple diagnoses, coordinating care transitions and care across multiple providers, and health promotion and disease prevention. These are all roles that RNs are playing in some practices, but it, it's not universally true that RNs have been hired and trained to do these roles. And there's now an increasing body of evidence that when they are, the practices are more productive and patient care is better. So the conclusions from the conference that we just held were that preparing registered nurses for enhanced roles in primary care is an urgent issue there are exemplary practices that show uh, that these enhanced roles are achievable with better outcomes. But to succeed at this endeavor, primary care and nursing education need to undergo fundamental culture change assisted by the engagement, support, and commitment of a wide variety of stakeholders. And patients will be the ultimate <coughs> beneficiaries. Now, third, so interprofessional education can advance primary care by training more frontline practitioners across the professions. Interprofessional education can enhance primary care by developing team-based care with enhanced roles for all team members, but particularly for the RNs. And third, interprofessional education can be the link between the education world and the healthcare delivery world to promote 
optimal environments for both learning and patient care. This was one of our aha moments for the Macy Foundation. We were working hard on interprofessional education and wondering why we weren't getting the impact that we wanted on the delivery side and realized that we had two different worlds working, two often separate worlds, the education world and the delivery world. IPE, interprofessional education, with the goal of collaborative practice, becomes that necessary link to bring these together. These are not two systems, they're one system with a common goal of improving patient care. So we held a series of conferences to really focus on how we can transform patient care by aligning interprofessional education and clinical practice redesign. We have to bring the worlds together, not have separate worlds of education and delivery, not reform education separate from reforming delivery, but actually do them together. We came out of this with a vision of a healthcare system in which learners and practitioners across the professions are working collaboratively with patients, families, and communities and with each other to accomplish the triple aim of better health, better patient experience, and lower costs. This is from a Lancet study in 2010 which looked at health professions education on a worldwide basis and made the observation across the globe that the education system and the health systems too often function separately from each other, but they need to be linked by the health professionals that one produce, the work in the other, and by the populations that both serve. The idea that healthcare education must be informed by the needs of the population served with a feedback loop, and the healthcare delivery systems must be designed to provide the optimal education experiences, and those things need to be done together. We then took it one more step and said that isn't enough. We have to partner with the patients and families and communities we serve. This is not just two overlapping Venn diagrams, it's three overlapping Venn diagrams. Patients, families, and communities, health professions, education reform, and clinical practice reform need to be brought together in what we call the partnership sweet spot, in which the patients and families and communities we serve are actually informing and providing feedback to health professions education reform and to delivery reform. And then the third in this series of conferences is that we need to use, intelligently use, uh, educational technology and information technology to enable this partnership. Technology we sometimes are beginning to see as our enemy in this, getting in our way, the electronic medical record and all the things that are getting away. We say it need not be that way. We actually need technology to bring about this unity of education reform and delivery reform and partnering with patients, families, community, all enabled by technology. And the vision coming out of this conference was that the future of health professions education, the intelligent use of educational and information technologies supports the linkage between education and delivery system to create this continuously learning health system. And in this system, teachers, learners, and clinical data inform continuous improvement by a feedback loop, enabling lifelong learning and promote innovation to improve the health of the public. So, Education doesn't sit by itself. Education exists to improve the health of the public. And only by partnering with patients, families, and communities 
to link that using technology? Can we build the system of the future that will really meet patients' needs? So what is this culture change we're talking about? We're moving from a world in which we focus on individuals, the individual doctor or the individual nurse, to a view that we're really all in this together. This is a collective process. We move from a hierarchical system where there are people on the top, people on the bottom, to one in which we really regard the health professions as a group as all playing an essential role in, in a much more equal system, to one which is profession-centered, it's doctor-centered or nurse-centered, to one which is patient-centered, to one in which we think about our patients kind of one by one, to one in which we think about the community we serve collectively, to moving from a competitive environment that worries about turf and, uh, and uh, recognition to one which is truly collaborative and to one which is truly nurturing. This is the dream for the system of the future that not only will improve primary care, but will improve the care of all of our patients in all settings, in which every one of the health professions plays an absolutely central role, but there's a particularly a central role for nurses in that. So in conclusion, uh, I've, hope, I've tried to make the point that teamwork and collaborative practice lead to better care, that interprofessional education is an essential tool to achieve teamwork and collaborative practice, that primary care reform critically depends upon a team approach and the full utilization of all health professions. Nurses, both advanced practice nurses and registered nurses, are central to transforming primary care to meet the needs of the public, and that culture change will be necessary to achieve these goals, and that interprofessional education and nurses are central to that culture change. So I'll stop there, and uh, we'll be open for questions in the time remaining. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Thiebaud. This is a, a great talk. Um, we are most fortunate here at Dartmouth to be the recipients of a HRSA GWEP. So we have a Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program uh, grant. And the grant um, was designed to stand up nurse-run clinics in primary care. Um, and we are using the Medicare benefits of the annual wellness visit, chronic care management, um, advanced care planning to actually bill for these visits uh, in the hopes of uh, sustaining this over time. One of our biggest challenges as you, as you visit here uh, is, is our workforce and recruiting and uh, how we recruit in a rural environment, how we train the direct care workforce as well. Um, so I wondered if you would, would just comment a little bit on that and, and, and moving forward in terms of even um, some of the policy work that we might do uh, around that to strengthen the, the workforce? Well, uh, that's a big and complicated question. Uh, so there are, there are clearly things we can do on the education end uh, to make these career pathways more attractive. The kind of experiences that our learners get, we know from a lot of evidence, do make a difference. That uh, students, whether in nursing or medicine, are more likely to pursue a primary care career 
if they have had immersive experience while learning in worthwhile, stimulating environments with good teachers and mentors and role models. And where that's absent, it is much less likely that uh, either physicians or nurses will, will pursue those careers. So, so the education does matter. So the nature of the educational experience matters. Obviously, there are other factors. Reimbursement matters, too. And, and uh, uh, we need to do a lot to reform our reimbursement system to reward the kind of team-based care that we're talking about and to reward all of the important uh, practitioners in that team-based care. And some of the work that uh, has actually been pioneered here around um, uh, accountable care organizations and new ways to reimburse that take us away from a fee-for-service system that is based totally on individual encounters and counting them, but rather looks in a more holistic way at care of patients over time uh, and care of patients by teams is the direction we need to move in. Uh, we're getting there by little tiny steps that are not always, it's not a straight line. Um, so I would say we need, we need both educational reform, we need reimbursement reform, and then we need uh, uh, to continue to shine the light on not only the individual role models, but the settings that are role models for the ideal kind of care that we want. Yes? I'm wondering where behavioral health fits into this vision because there's a lot of buzz about integrated uh, care with behavioral health and physical care. We know that um, there's a nice study showing that there's better uh, satisfaction in part of professionals. There's a, there's, there's a triple aim is, is uh, enhanced. In New Hampshire, we have a delivery system reform improvement project grant, $150 million to integrate behavioral health into primary care. And uh, the University of New Hampshire has a uh, HRN psychiatric nurse program that they're starting now, and um, I'm trying to see how that fits into this. Well, it, it fits perfectly into the model. I agree. And, and in fact, one of the examples that I gave from the literature had to do with the uh, care of depression and a team-based model. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Uh, it's it is a it is another very important area where again the team-based approach is beginning to gather evidence that it is, in fact, not only more efficient, but leads to better outcomes and leads to greater professional satisfaction. The same, uh, what people are now calling not just the triple aim, but the quadruple aim, the fourth aim being that of professional satisfaction and professional fulfillment. Um, so it, it is a perfect area that lends itself to it, an area like primary care that we have underinvested in as a society, where we have a lot of evidence that there's in it, that patient needs are not being met, and the team-based approach is, is clearly uh, the way to go to meet those needs. Again, taking it back to the educational system as well, there are some innovative programs uh, that I haven't cited here that are really looking at the educational system to develop health professionals together, physicians, uh, uh, advanced practice psychiatric nurses, psychologists, social workers, all in the same training environment to develop the skills to work in a team environment later on. But it's an absolutely perfect example that uh, uh, fits the formula uh, well. Jim. Thank you for being here. Uh, I wonder about the issues of inequity. So, oh, thank you. 
of team, uh, the issues of in inequity. It, for, for organizations like us who have the ability to pull some of these great things together that Peter and others are talking about is wonderful, but most of the country can't. And so I'm just curious what Macy and others are doing to think about how we do this for the whole country and get into the communities. Um, because the tremendous inequity creates tremendous cost. It starts, you know, at a young level. But is there any work being done in that space? Well, there's a lot of interest, uh, happily, in uh, um, what we're now, now being called the social determinants of health and, uh, and the social mission of our health institutions more broadly. Uh, we've been involved in supporting uh, a movement called the Beyond Flexner Movement, started by Fitzhugh Mullen at George Washington with now many people around the country participating. We just had the third meeting of this group in Miami, with about 500 people there, uh, to really look at how our education system is preparing people or not preparing people to address these um, inequities and the social determinants of health and what is our role both as individual health professionals and as institutions in doing that. I, I don't, there is not, as you know, a simple answer to that, but it begins by acknowledging, one, they exist, and secondly, that it's that we in the health professions and we as institutions must play a role in ameliorating them. It's not somebody else's problem to fix. Uh, we need to address it. We need to address it in looking at the communities that surround our academic health centers that, and what responsibility are we taking for the health of the communities in which we reside, in, in what messages we give to our learners about their responsibility as they be, become uh, full-fledged health professionals, and are we giving them skills to do that? And some of those skills, coming back to interprofessional education, are dealing with other professions, not in the health professions. And again, we believe that teaching these collaborative team-based skills also put our health professionals in a better position to deal with the social determinants of health, which involve working with public health officials, working with community leaders, of how resources can be made available and knowing uh, and, and becoming advocates within each community. I think we've not emphasized that enough in either our institutional role or in the education of the next generation of health professionals that this is part of our responsibility as health professionals to get involved in our communities and to be advocates and to reach out and work with uh, other leaders in other professions outside the health professions that will begin to address some of these uh, inequities and social determinants of health. And I would say I'm encouraged um, that, first of all, the conversations are going on, um, that there's a younger generation that is much more attuned to this and say that the exciting uh, 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 excitement uh, that this has generated uh, among uh, uh, the generation that is now being trained and educated, the uh, attractiveness of uh, the global medicine initiatives, which I think have an important resonance 
And what I like to keep reminding people is you don't have to go abroad to uh, perform that social mission. There's lots of opportunities here at home. Uh, so I think it, it is an important part of, of institutional mission and an important part of educational mission that we need to put up front. Yes? I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about uh, the way in which we need to change um, education to be much more active um, and, and to be engaged in the process of not only transforming care, but studying the ways to do that, which is, I think, pro probably the role of implementation science uh, right. to some extent, and how we can train a cadre of nurse-based researchers to help further that knowledge set on how we change care and study it while we're doing it and not simply do uh, CME conferences or passive medical education, which we know doesn't work. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so I did cite the work of the National Center, which uh, we and the federal government are supporting, and that's part of that is a research-focused uh, activity that is really studying uh, the impact of both the educational interventions and the collaborative practice interventions. But it is about also, as you say, preparing leaders in each of the fields. That's why having more, nurse, more doctorally prepared nurses, uh, whether the doctor of nursing practice or PhD prepared nurses, to assume that leadership role uh, in, uh, in investigating the impact of these changes. You're absolutely right. And we need that across all, all of the professions. This kind of work uh, must be done interprofessionally because the answers are interprofessional, whether it's how do you improve care, how do you address inequities, how do you deal with the social determinants of health, how do you um, uh, better prepare the next generation of health professionals to be aware of these things. All of that work uh, needs to be interprofessional work. And we need leaders from each of the fields participating in it. One of the th questions I'm sometimes asked in talking about interprofessional education is, oh, is the goal of this to make all the professions look the same, that everybody's just going to do the same thing? And I say, no, absolutely not. In fact, the value of interprofessional education and collaborative practice comes from the strength and the unique perspective that each prof profession brings to the table. So strong, uniprofessional education and development is the key to successful interprofessional education. So it is the unique perspective of nurses, the unique perspective of pharmacists, and the unique perspective of physicians that bring to the table that makes the team, the collective, stronger than any of the individuals. So in, and having a strong research component of it and having academic leadership in each of the professions is particularly important. We have a question up here. Sure. Thank you very much for an excellent talk. Um, so clearly, a major culture change has to happen for all this to occur, and clearly education is a clear piece of it. Uh, but we exist right now, and if we want to make changes right now, so education is going to take us quite some time to get there. Can you comment on the facilitators and barriers and, and specific successes and failures where you've tried to implement these kinds of cultural changes and what lessons have been learned from that? 
Well, I, I gave a little bit of lesson slides at the beginning. First of all, that leadership's important. It happens in institutions where there's committed leadership to do it. It becomes part of the fabric of the institution that gets repeated over and over again. And, and that's really important, that people hear this from their leaders. Uh, because the leaders not only set the example, but they also have resources that they can put to it. This almost always means rearranging resources, which is always a hard thing to do. And that can't be done without leadership. Uh, and you need to create incentives and rewards to move things in the right direction. Um, and then you need committed champions to lead it. So the work, the on-the-ground work, uh, needs to be done by people who really believe in it and who are passionate about it, who really want to change whether it's uh, uh, a clinic that needs to be changed and reorganized. And you find in, in, in institutions that get involved in this work, you'll see little pockets of excellence develop. And then they become the models and the incentives for others. And it's usually around uh, a particular group of people in that place, often where there was maybe a, 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 a already a successful relationship a, a doctor-nurse dyad that were working very well together, and then it became a model for how other people were going to work together. So you seed those then, and you provide, again, incentives, shine the light on them, highlight them, write about them, talk about them, and they become then the, uh, um, uh, you get to a tipping point where other people want to be like them. So it's a, it's a long, slow process, it is, uh, and it has to be repeated over and over again. Uh, there's not a simple formula uh, to doing it, but it's, it's, it can be done, and we see examples of it happening. I wouldn't say there's any place that's all the way there by any means. Uh, I think there was, yeah. Hi. Um, can you say a word about uh, how the leadership within interprofessional teams can change, can function in the future? Um, I think I know you understand, but it may not be fully generally understood that uh, there's been a massive change from um, nurse practitioners uh, being trained at a master's level in 2015 nationally that, in general, switched to a doctoral level. That's what the DNP is. So it would be a shame for uh, nurse practitioners who are trained at a master's level, many whom are at DH, to go get a DNP, come back and work here, and go back to the same role. So how do we take people that now have a DNP and use their new, new skill set to change the leadership within the interprofessional teams? Well, um, obviously, there, again, like, <laughs> like all the questions, there's not a simple answer to that. But there need to be leadership opportunities. I, I want to say, I. Uh, maybe I have, there, I, I think there will always be an important role for the master's prepared nurse practitioner. I, I do not, for one, believe that role should disappear or I want it to disappear. And I don't think every nurse practitioner should become a DMP. And I know others may disagree with me on that, but I think there's, there continues to be a very important role for the advanced practice nurse. Uh, and I think that role is bigger and more important than ever. And I, for one, do not believe that there should be a total conversion of the master's prepared nurse to, to DMP. I think we need doctorally prepared nurses to be faculty 
and to be leaders in clinical sites, leaders in healthcare systems, leaders in community sites. I think there'll be a variety of roles, and I think different places will prepare them for different roles, as you well know, and I know because I travel the country a lot. DNP programs are actually quite variable around the country of what their emphasis is. Some have an explicit uh, um, uh, uh, leadership component. Others have much more advanced practice component. Some have more of a kind of quality improvement, system improvement component. So there are different strengths to different programs. I think that uh, and programs are often designed, as I'm sure the one here will be, to also meet specific local needs uh, with certain things in mind. Of what, what are the, the positions uh, that are needed? What are the roles that need to be filled? And then tailor the program to fill that. But I think uh, there's, a, um, there's more than enough work to be done. <laughs> and, there, and there's an incredible amount of uh, opportunity uh, for nurses to assume more leadership roles. And the environment is ready for that. Um, there's an active interdisciplinary um, education program right now with the Geisel medical students, the Colby Sawyer nursing students, and the Franklin Pierce PA students. And that's all well and good. And it's building and becoming more and more robust. Um, do you have recommendations as, and, and, and these, I don't know the percentage of these Geisel medical students that one, stay local, DH, and two, stay in, pri or, or go into primary care, same thing with the Franklin Pierce PA students and the nursing students. Do you have any recommendations as to how we here under this roof as clin clinicians could um, observe perhaps some of the um, programs that they have and apply it to the clinical practice currently here? Do you understand my question? Uh, I think so. So, so let me say, I, while the focus of this talk today was the application of this to improving primary care, uh, I don't want to leave the impression that that's the only reason to do this. So I really believe that uh, training people in an interprofessional way and preparing them for collaborative practice will benefit them as, as clinicians and practitioners, whatever field they go into. And I don't measure the success as solely how many go into primary care or don't. So uh, just to be clear about that, though that was the focus of this, that's not the only end point. Um, and, and, and of course, at a place like this, you are training and educating people who are not all going to stay here, of course. And one hopes that they carry then what, what they've got here and they try to influence and have an impact on other environments wherever they go. As far as fulfilling particular local needs, I, I think it comes back to what are the kind of experiences they're having. And, and if, if they get really turned on as learners about a particular place that they uh, find exciting to take care of patients or a particular kind of practice that they want to be in, then there is, you've increased the likelihood that they may want to stay. And, and I think it's about finding those jewels. Um, too often in our educational system, we've relied on just what's available. 
and what's available often, sadly, in many of our academic medical centers are not very functional clinical situations where a lot of our learning's going on. And so if we really pay attention that we're going to have our learners only go to the most highly functioning clinical places, and we're going to really work hard to increase those number of highly functioning clinical sites, then we will have, I believe, not only uh, uh, produced better clinicians, but we'd have a higher chance that they'd want to make that uh, the place that they want to keep working uh, in the long run. I think we have time for one more question. Thank you. Thank you for the very inspiring talk. Um, I was particularly struck by two things. Um, one is the integration of education and healthcare delivery, um, which I think is really, really critical. And the second is the um, elevation of the importance of the faculty role in the interprofessional educational process. Um, we need to educate our faculty potentially more than our learners um, on a lot of these concepts. Um, and so I wondered, and that's key to the integration of education and healthcare delivery science and the implementation at the bedside, the couple past couple questions. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your vision um, for what that faculty development looks like um, for our physician faculty, our nurse faculty, social work, family faculty, all of it. No, that, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm glad you got those take-home messages. That's good. Uh, so faculty development is a huge issue, and it, we, we generally underinvest in faculty development for almost everything we want to do. We kind of think that, well, they're smart, they'll catch on, and uh, <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, so a lot more effort needs to be put on faculty development, and for this purpose, and I would say for, a lot, for many things that we want to change, it is better if that faculty development is interprofessional. And right now, our faculty develop insofar as we're doing faculty development or what we call continuing education or, go or, or professional development, by and large, that's siloed in almost all institutions. And the first thing I would do is I'd look at all of those programs and say, how many of those can we do interprofessionally and start working on doing in-house interprofessional faculty development? Uh, lots of things lend itself to that easily. All our quality improvement, patient safety initiatives, that's really faculty development. All should be done interprofessionally. Then there are ways to actually uh, train faculty elsewhere. We've been supporting a number of programs. I showed the slide of the IPEC group which uh, developed the competencies. They have regular programs uh, in faculty development that institutions can send teams to to get intensive kind of on-site uh, training in an interprofessional approach to faculty development. We are supporting through grants uh, a collaborative effort of the University of Washington, the University of Missouri, University of Virginia, and the National Center that I showed you to do team-based faculty development. Again, institutions and teams always includes a doctor, virtually always includes a doctor and a nurse, maybe a social worker, uh, uh, physical therapist, or pharmacist, teams to have intensive several-day sessions in learning uh, about approaches to interprofessional education as a team. So do it on site, 
rearrange all of your faculty, all of your continuing education, professional development into an interprofessional approach, and then take advantage of some of these national resources that are available to actually train teams of faculty on how to work together educationally. So, thank you all. Oh, oh. I was going to thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, and um, colleagues, please join me in thanking Dr. Tebow. And did you notice that as the talk went on, there were fewer screw-ups? So, so maybe it's going to be all right.